3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, Today is the 15th of Feb, 2022. And we're just past 7am. Joining me, Fung, this morning is Genevieve, Evie and Carnegie. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. How are we this morning? Yeah, I'm I'm okay. <laughs> um, just speaking earlier, we're had a, it feels like a busy week already. Um, but it feels okay. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I'm already swept up in... Um, work and just the year but yeah yeah (laughs) yeah. um yeah I feel like there's a lot happening already yeah in February definitely Um, mm. I think a lot of people feel like they have to make up time um because of what they perceive as the time we lost in lockdown so it feels like you're running around yeah definitely (laughs) I mean uh to that I would just say Definitely don't no. give in to that pressure. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It can be really hard, though. I think it can be really hard to just take a step back and to take it easy and do yeah. what feels okay for you. Yeah. Um, whether that's pressure socially, but it's more likely pressure from, like, living in a capitalist world. Yes. Where you're pressured to go out there and be productive and yeah achieve 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 yeah is what yeah. you should be doing all the time i know it's a fun joke to say capitalism is at fault but also capitalism is at fault totally. so. <laughs> yeah i just thought yeah you can deflect all responsibility um i read this amazing article uh, i think it was an overland journal i'm so sorry i can't remember the journalist that wrote it um but it talked about this idea of achievement society um Mm. and this idea I think she was talking in the frame of being a journalist specifically but just this desperate uh push to constantly be achieving something but the end is there's no it's kind of like a bottomless pit it's like you achieve that thing and then there's the next thing and like oh, there's it's always just more. there's yeah and you're kind of like running like <laughs> desperately um see jen I, I don't know what that's like because like i, I don't know whether other desi sort of kids are the same but like mm-hmm. that's just life <laughs> yeah <laughs> growing up in that environment everything is like onto the next achievement and it's like oh Actually, I just want to vibe for a bit. Yeah. She even <laughs> talked about in the frame of getting a house, getting a rental house, like getting approved for the house is, I guess, deemed as an achievement, uh, not necessarily um, getting a degree or blah, blah, blah. But Well, you do have to yeah. do like a resume for like getting a house now. Oh, so it's so <laughs> one form. So I'm lame. sure some, <laughs> some <laughs> I have one form. Hey, one form. <laughs> Um, so I just wanted to remind everyone that uh, it's a subscriber, it's the subscriber drive for 3CR. So uh, we'll be chatting a bit about that 
throughout the show. Um, but if you're interested, um, subscri- subscription costs are $35 unwaged or concession or pension, $75 waged and $150 solidarity band or organisation. Um, and it's really easy to subscribe to 3CR. You can call the station on 94198377. That's 94198377. Um, or you can go online to 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. And by doing so, you'll get to... Listen to us, listen to all your um, favourite radical radio programs um, and it also gives you the right to be involved in how the station is run um, as you get a chance to vote in the AGM. So uh, we'll chat a bit more about it later on, but yeah, definitely subscribe. Uh, We've got a great show coming up today. I just wanted to run through what's coming up. Carnegie, you spoke to someone really interesting recently i sure did uh so i spoke to dilpreet who runs uh, an independent news media outlet called south asian today Uh, and we just talked about why it's important to have that platform for uh, south asian women and talked about what's happening in india at the moment with islamophobia and caste discrimination Awesome. That will be such a great discussion. After that, um, I'll be speaking to Margie Beavis from Quit Nukes, who have, we've talked about on the show before, just continuing that conversation that we've been having on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast about um, why it's important to divest from companies that are involved in the testing, manufacturing, funding of nuclear weapons. And we're going to be talking specifically about um, Australian superannuation funds, Um, that are already leading the way by doing so. Um, And, yeah, so if you're – and you may have heard actually earlier this morning on the Radioactive show, uh, they broadcast speeches from a recent protest, um, protesting against uh, nuclear war. So please revisit that um, episode of the Radioactive show um, if you're interested And uh, then, Evie, you are speaking to someone from the the community gardens. Yes, that's right. I'm going to be speaking to Andrea Whitcomb from the Collingwood Community Gardens Association. Um, She's a plotter of the gardens there and a member of the Collingwood Children's Farm. Um, You may have seen some things in the news over the last uh, week or so. And in fact, since June last year, uh, a lot of controversy around the planning and use of the Collingwood Collingwood Children's Farm. Um, The farm itself uh, is now under threat. Um, there's lots of dispute as to the reasons as to why. Um, there's a lot of claims of, you know, safety, um, use of the farms, the, the, the way in which they're set up. Um, so we're going to talk to Andrea to get to the bottom of what's happening there and what we can do to help support the Collingwood Children's Farm. Yeah, awesome. And um, regular listeners of Breakfast um, and of 3CR would have heard throughout the year, well, since last year, that Annie... Um, Uh, from Solidarity Breakfast has covered this issue a lot, which is awesome. And then finally, Jen. Yes, I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Andrea Whaling uh, about sexual education. There was an amazing article written recently that 
pointed out new research done into not just the importance of teaching uh, a diverse range of sexual education, but also teaching about um, pleasure and fun and how that's actually aiding towards giving young people a better understanding of what intimacy actually is. So we'll be talking about that. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Well, we may as well just jump straight into the news headlines for this morning. Um, I I might start, because I know uh, Carnegie, yours is going to be directly related to your first interview. Um, So I did want to just alert everyone to the fact that thousands of New New South Wales nurses are set to strike um, and uh, the um, in defiance of Industrial Relations Commission ruling, um, they've been told to call it off. Um, as it is, uh, or as it would pose a risk to um, public health and safety, that that um, industrial action, that uh, strike, is set to to happen today. Um, uh, the union is calling for stricter nurse-to-patient ratios and a 2.5 percent increase in pay following unsuccessful negotiations with the government. Um, and they've been told to yeah, stop organising, call off the strike and also not authorise any members to take part. Um, and, yeah, we know that nurses have been doing it really mm. rough since the beginning of the pandemic, but also just since forever. For, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so definitely solidarity with any um, nurses who are striking today because it would be really tough and and be really hard to to be told that um, you doing so would pose a public risk and yeah it's a it's a tricky situation but but I think they deserve a lot more for sure mm. yeah okay Connie you take it away yeah so uh, I've been following some um, something that's going on in India at the moment um, which is that in the southern state of Karnataka. Uh, they're trying to ban hijabs at a high school um, and the case is currently in the court at the moment and is being heard and it's um, a very concerning situation in India because since this government has been around, which is now far longer than it should have been around um, there's been a lot of religious intolerance being peddled by the people in charge and you know they've been stoking this kind of religious hatred for a number of years even before they actually won the election and this is just a really stark example of how that's actually playing out in real time um so in Karnataka at this particular school they're trying to ban what girls from just wearing a hijab at all and an Indian court has said that students should stop wearing the hijab until they make the final ruling on whether a school day can ban the headscarves altogether. Um, There's protests all over the world against this, understandably. India is supposed to be a secular country that uh, is really big on religious freedoms, so uh, very, very concerning. And yeah, we'll be reporting on that um, next week as well, depending on what happens in the court. Um, on a similar vein, there, I think a, a week ago now, one of India's most prominent singers, who's 
anyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s uh, in India would know her voice, Lata Mangeshkar. She recently died from COVID complications. She was in her 90s. And the state of Maharashtra, where the city of Bombay is, uh, held a state mourning uh, funeral and held a whole day of mourning for the day. And, of course, heaps of prominent um, Bollywood celebrities and politicians and everybody was um, at the funeral. And one of India's biggest superstars, Shah Khan, who is Muslim, attended the funeral. And this is, I mean, it's like so funny in a way that this is the rumor that's been circulated but he prayed at her grave and because he's muslim the rumor is that he spat on it instead and i just find it to be it's like there's cameras everywhere everyone can see what he's doing um but to come I, I, it's just crazy to me that you can come after one of the biggest stars in the country for being muslim I think the two are connected and it speaks to a much kind of bigger issue of Islamophobia in the country. Um, and yeah, as you said, Fung, I spoke with Dilpreet more about this and, you know, what our kind of responsibilities are as um, Indian women and as the Indian diaspora around the world. Well, that seems like a really interesting topic that um, I can't wait for our listeners to get into. But yeah, wow, that's such a wild rumor um, <laughs> when you were saying like everyone could see what was happening there's photos there's videos yeah it's all there yeah and still well um we will take a very quick break and we will be back with Carnegie's interview right after this Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. I'm Chai Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. All right. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. So uh, as I just mentioned earlier... We, I spoke with Dilpreet, who is an independent journalist, earlier this week. Born and raised in India, in 2020, Dilpreet launched South, South, South Asian Today, uh, Australia's first media startup for South Asian women and non-binary people. She continues to shape and work on anti-caste, progressive and feminist media and diverse ways of storytelling. We talked about caste discrimination, Islamophobia, and India's right-wing government, and the importance of having a media platform for South Asian women specifically. So in this interview, uh, Dilpreet does talk about two of India's lowest castes that have been discriminated against for centuries, um, called Dalits and Bahujans. Um, So just context around what that is, and we will include some more links in our show notes later today if you wanted to look up more about casteism and prominent anti-caste activists. 
Uh, welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast Still Breathe. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about your background and your journey from growing up in Delhi to living in Melbourne? Yes, sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me, first of all. I am an independent journalist. I'm based in Melbourne, but born and raised my whole life in India. Um, I didn't uh, grow up in Delhi. I went to uni in Delhi. So Delhi University was like a really, really big part of my life. That's kind of where my journey of being a writer, artist, activist, feminist really started. Um, people give uh, Delhi a lot of shit, uh, which is fine. But for me, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me. So I grew up in various different places. I grew up in the hills. Then I grew up in Punjab, then Delhi. Then I went to Bombay to work in a newsroom. Hated it, completely hated where um, journalism and media is these days in India. So even though I had no plans whatsoever to ever leave it or to ever move out. I was never really smitten by the West. I was never really interested in, um, you know, going abroad as is a very big thing back home. I felt like I had to because the time that I was in India, it, it, you know, it was kind of the lowest point of journalism and media. So I was like, nope, I have to get out of here. I can't let this thing swallow me. So I came here to Australia in 2017. Um, I had never left India before and I came straight to a country which is um, a very interesting mix of old and new and is in quite a weird spectrum in terms of world affairs. Um, but yeah, I guess now I'm uh, running South Asian Today, which is a media platform for South Asian women and non-binary peoples. We launched in April 2020, so almost two years now. Um Yes, I'm obsessed with South Asian today as a South Asian woman living in Melbourne. It's uh, my absolute go-to for news. And Aww. it's just, it's so refreshing to read news written from that perspective. And it's very clear that it's run by other South Asian people. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad that that comes across because <laughs> there was one magazine I found in Mel uh, in 2017 based in Melbourne and it was South Asian, but it was completely run by white people. And I was like, what is this? What is happening? Uh, yeah, so a big cringe moment for me. So I'm glad that it comes across as if South Asians are running it. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I feel like we're at a point where that will no longer fly with mm. running a South Asian kind of news outlet. So nope. that's a positive thing. Um, but, but tell the listeners a bit more about how um, South Asian Today came about. Sure. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, you know, my interest in journalism and my interest in talking about world issues, what's happening in terms of gender, caste, class. So coming to Australia from a country where content is literally everywhere, we produce a lot of it back home. We have a lot of print, a lot of digital, a um, lot of OTT. You know, there's there's just a lot happening back home. And I guess that was a big shock to me um, in terms of not finding enough to consume here. And on top of that, not finding a brown publication. Do you know what I mean? It's like 2017. And I was like, ah, how come we don't have this already? So uh, I think South Asian Today is a product of my, obviously my interests in, you know, um, South Asian uh, politics, but also my kind of desire to close this gap between journalism and media and the South Asian diaspora in Australia. And the, the big thing about South Asian today, although, is 
I'm very conscious of not making it a very Chai Bollywood-centric publication. Like I've been saying that continuously for the last two years, and I will continue to, uh, you know, focus on that because my experience with South Asian journalism in the West was very much like this Langa and that Bollywood film. And I was like, yeah, this is like a column in a publication. Like that can't be the whole publication, you know? Um, and then I started writing about caste, which, uh, got a lot of backlash back in the day because I don't think the diaspora is at a point where it wants to understand that and kind of feels attacked by it whereas our purpose is to talk about caste within the diaspora because wherever South, South Asians go they bring caste and I kind of refuse to believe that caste doesn't exist outside of India because it very much does all the wedding matrimonials you'll find in Australia um, all the family functions that you'll go to, people are very, very clearly talking about caste, but they call it community, which is where, um, you know, the problem begins. Because I think uh, uh, this idea of being in a community is very, like, close to the diaspora's heart. So when we bring caste and class and when we talk about migration, when we talk about the status difference between Indians born and raised here and Indians coming from India, um, those kinds of articles were a bit um, spicy <laughs> when we first started, but I'm glad that we've been able to reach an audience where there is hunger for these kind of conversations. So coming back to it, um, that's the kind of journalism we want to produce. We want to talk about South Asian issues. We are not very interested in being the best community out there and, you know, um, that's not really our desire. We want um, South Asian women to be listened to. We want South Asian queer people to have a place to publish. We definitely, definitely want Dalit and Bahujan South Asians to write. Um, so, yeah, these are the kind of conversations that we're interested in. And so we, we, we're, we're very clear about what kind of um, topics we want to pick. So um, it's a digital publication. Anyone anywhere can read and anyone from anywhere can pitch as well. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the cast because uh, the focus on cast has been really important for me. There's, as you mentioned, not a lot out there. And mm. as a South Asian woman living here, I also find explaining cast very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. Outside of India, people have this sort of weird kind of um, very simplistic view of this hierarchy and they don't really understand how much a part of society it is it's it's a mindset that people can't overcome and yeah ceremony you know why people put their skin tone as wheatish for example mm, mm, um, cringe yes um but you know south asian today is definitely making a dent in that with the articles that are coming out and um, I was just wondering, you know, what your experience has been raising awareness around caste discrimination and if you have any hot tips for the rest of us. <laughs> oh, um, well, it's very clear that if you're going to talk about caste, you are going to be outcasted by a lot of South Asian uh, members and community leaders, community leaders, I hate that term, um, and, you know, general public that is very proud of being South Asian because they will look at you as if you are trying to shame 
Um, being South Asian, they will look at you as if you are whitewashed, colonized. Uh, you don't understand how beautiful your culture is. Um, yes, I do. I'm born and raised in India. Thank you very much. We were in the belly of culture and we do not look at it that way because culture can be very suffocating. Culture can be very patriarchal. So our mindset around culture is not being possessive about it. It's more about, you know, kind of deconstructing it and seeing how culture can actually harm us and control us by being, um, you know, so-called tradition and rituals. So I'm just going to say it's not easy. Uh, it's never going to be easy because you are kind of calling your own so-called community out. But a hot tip would be if this is the path you've chosen, if, you ha if you've chosen to talk about caste, then it comes with repercussions and I guess I, you know, I kind of learned how to go with it. Like in the beginning, yes, I was a bit like, oh, uh, I, you know, people are not going to, are not talking to me. People are gossiping about me, you know, telling other people that I'm not genuine. Um, and then as months passed and as I did more stories, it kind of, I, I became okay with the fact that the stories were always, always more important than who's going to like you and who's going to dislike you. And as journalists and people who are in the media, I think, you can't just please anybody. Uh, in fact, that should not be a part of your job to please anybody, right? We're just here to ask questions, um, investigate all this casteism bullshit that's happening in Australia or around, you know, wherever you are. Uh, I think it's it's all about your own mindset, to be honest. You know, it's not really a tip you can learn overnight. And uh, talking about caste is not going to come easy to people who are here to make moves or who are here to, you know grow up the ladder of hierarchy uh it's kind of gonna do quite the opposite of it so <laughs> i'm not really a part of many indian australian groups um i don't think i'll ever be because uh, i'm just not welcome there you know because i'm calling them out on their hindu supremacy i'm calling them out on their caste supremacy and at the end of the day i'm just doing my job so i've just learned how not to please and that's been uh, you know it's it's an easy ride after that but getting there can be tough yeah, absolutely. And it's more and more being spoken about in the media, like, for example, with the Harvard um, recent news that they added a provision to protect all student workers from caste based discrimination, which is huge, like people mm. and Indians particularly respect Harvard. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was a big, big news, right? Like an Ivy League university um acknowledging caste like that was huge and i think that's testimony to the fact that work is happening people are talking about it caste discrimination is uh you know just as much talked about like gender discrimination racial discrimination like it's becoming part of our everyday terminology uh and that's thanks to a lot of the Bahujan people and activists who are doing it every single day so um yeah you know it's it's the work that matters at the end of the day exactly you mentioned earlier the religious intolerance that is everywhere in India at the moment, thanks mm. to our extremely right-wing Hindu extremist <laughs> government. Yeah. You know, I grew up in Bombay in the 90s, and mm. it was not even a part of my experience. So mm -hmm. it's very jarring to see what's happening at yeah. the moment. For example, there's they're trying to ban um, women and girls from wearing a hijab in the state of Karnataka. Mm -hmm. um, and something that I never imagined is also happening, which is that Bollywood's biggest star, who is Muslim, Shah Rukh Khan, yeah. is in the firing line from the government for 
praying in public at a funeral. Mm-hmm. It's absurd. Like, what are your thoughts on India's swing to the right? Yeah. You know, growing up in India, you grow up in such a diverse, like such a diverse country. You you travel two hours from where you're living and the language is going to change. Food is going to change. You're pretty much a tourist in your own country, to be honest. And um, we grew up with people wearing their religious garments quite openly, quite often. Like, as you said, it wasn't really a big thing. Like, I'm not probably going to go to an extent saying that Islamophobia didn't exist. I think Islamophobia has always existed in India. Our um, so-called, you know, uh, enemy relations with Pakistan, it keeps cropping up. But I will definitely say that this has gone uh, too far you know I, I sometimes um I can't believe that that's India I feel sometimes very disconnected with it one of my friends texted me last week and he was like do you recognize this and I was like funnily I don't I'm finding it very hard to wrap my head around it uh, it's making me really angry it's also hilarious at the, at the same time at how the Indian media is treating Shah Rukh Khan um, the kind of the way they are twisting the whole story he is literally praying and they say that he's spitting on Lata Mangeshkar like that makes zero sense and this is someone who's given his whole life to the Indian film industry you know is an icon to so many people so bottom line they will come for anybody bottom line is that they are completely intolerant of whether it's a Muslim school girl or whether it's a Muslim superstar the fact that they are Muslims is, you know, really, really making it making, uh, sorry, it's really making them very uncomfortable. Their idea of making India a Hindu nation is not just an electorate document. That's actually their vision. And they're going to go to extreme lengths to do that. And coming back to the whole hijab ban in Karnataka, I don't think it's about the hijab. I think it's about education. I think they're trying to really stifle this community, they're trying to suffocate them. They're trying to take away their rights. They're trying to actually push them out. So this idea about whether hijab is a choice, hijab is not a choice. I feel like we're kind of moving away from the conversation. The conversation is why is someone's access to education being taken away from them just because they come from a certain community. And I think we need to talk about how basic rights are being taken away from the Muslim community and how things are turning. I was watching this interview with this Muslim schoolgirl in Karnataka and she was like, all of these people were my friends until yesterday. So, you know, the kind of brainwashing that's happening right from the top, from BJP to actually school communities and school organizations is something of a massive concern. Supreme Court has jumped in and I hope they can, you know, solve it as soon as they can because India is not a country where you ban anyone from wearing hijab, full stop. It's not in our constitution. It's not in the fabric of us being secular. It's not a fabric of us being democratic. It's never been this country. And I and I really, really despise when we kind of uh, compare India to other regressive nations. And we're like, oh, if you don't like India, then go there. Why? Why are you comparing your country uh, to another country which doesn't you know, provide all its citizens with equal rights? We actually do. So we it's time we implement our constitution and, you know, move uh, further away from this. But uh, honestly... <laughs> Prime Minister Narendra Modi has really, really changed um, India's fabric. And it's uh, honestly, it's pretty disgusting. And I I always say this, he just has to go. Absolutely. And I hope that 
In the last few years, um, that's become quite clear. I think that um, even people who were once kind of on the fence have hopefully now seen that this is not the way forward at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people on the fence. Well, they are interesting ones, aren't they? Because it's only when things hit too close to home that they'll make a choice, whereas we had years to make a choice. So, yeah, Yeah. we've, we've given him a lot of time. Yeah, it's a fun uh, common thread between a lot of world leaders, actually, who have done this and these people who kind of sit in in the centre up until they're affected personally. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which in India has happened with um, the promise of economic gain, which didn't really, they didn't come through, so... No, exactly. Because they were like, oh, he might be conservative, but he's going to change India's economic fabric. Sure, sure. We all saw what happened when COVID hit. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, So I also wanted to talk about your podcast roots, which Mm -hmm. uh, has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts. Thanks. And while I've been listening to it, it, it has occurred to me that there is no other avenue for me to listen to just two brown women talk. Which is absurd if you think about it. It uh, is. <laughs> yeah. So what has what has that experience been like for you having these chats with, you know, different brown women from different walks of life? Oh, it's been absolutely amazing. I've talked with beauty influencers, I've talked with anti-capitalists, I've talked to artists, actors, um just you know, this plethora of South Asian women who are really, really doing the work on the ground. And when I started Roots, I had just one idea. I was like, I need to have a one-on-one with all these South Asian women and non-binary people that I look up to, and that's it. And I'm going to just let the conversation flow. So with Roots, I don't really plan much. I don't really go into a lot of research. Um, If uh, uh, people who are listening to this, if you tune into an episode, it's very organic. We just actually have a chat, which is what I wanted to do. Because a lot of, um, uh, you know, podcasts can be scripted. A lot of it can be, oh, don't ask me this, don't ask me that. When my guests are like, hi, Dilsi, can you send us a few questions? I'm like, "Mm, no. (laughs) But there's a mutual trust, you know, there's a lot of love. And I'm like, I really want it to be organic and I can give you a little bit of brief, but I would love if we cannot exchange any questions because I want it to be like, you know, right there in the moment. And I'm very glad that people have uh, trusted me with it. And I think because they follow my work, they know that I'm never going to sort of exploit them or, you know, make them look out of context or anything it's been it's been really really empowering for me I've learned so much I've talked to so many you know Dalit women I've talked to so many uh you know black and South Asian people as well so there's a lot of big conversation happening around what is it like being mixed race what is it like being you know moving out of a conservative household what even is mental health um you know why can't we talk to our parents and um why is it so hard for the lgbtqi plus community in australia to date uh and so so many more conversations and i think yeah it's really been one of the most fulfilling experiences because i did it all through lockdown just over a screen and i wish i wish i can meet them one day but yes it's i i look i myself look forward to recording you know it's it never feels like it's work i would love for you to organize like a big brown girl party and invite all your guests Fuck yes <laughs> 
Oh my God. Yeah. I always like make actual playlists. I'm like one day when I have a party, <laughs> these are the songs. <laughs> so what's next for you? I feel like you're always working on something new and exciting. Heaps. Um, a couple of months ago, we opened our own shop as well. Uh, so we're working with six artists. We sell prints and other merch. Um, and we're very open and very transparent about it. So it's 50-50 partnership, 50% comes back to South Asian today, 50% directly goes back to the artist. And the idea of that was to, you know, generate a microeconomy for artists and also pay our writers. Um, and we're going to go for round two very soon. We have new prints, new t-shirts. And, you know, that's something that I'm really looking forward to because good merch feels <laughs> really good. I'm like, oh my God, this t-shirt is so sexy. Other than that, of course, I'm still recording podcast. Um, I'll be releasing five more episodes very soon. I'm very excited about them. And then we are, you know, working with a lot of writers, uh, exploring new columns. Just today, we announced that we're going to have like a monthly TV and film column on South Asian Today because a lot of our audience like loves watching um, new shows and new movies, myself included. Um, so, yeah, there's also a little bit of pop culture happening and, you know, I'm I'm really excited to also one day make a print edition, a special print edition, which is a big dream of mine. And hopefully by the end of this year, we can get there. And definitely an event. I really want people to get together, have some, you know, drinks and bevs going, have a good panel discussion, have a dance party. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting people. But unfortunately, that keeps getting postponed, but hopefully soon. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. So thank you so, so much for your time today, Dilpreet. It has been amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lovely chat. So that was a conversation I had with Dilpreet, who is the uh, founder of South Asian Today and an independent journalist. So to know more, please visit southasiantoday.com.au or you can follow South Asian Today on Instagram at South Asian Today. Also, highly recommend listening to Roots wherever you get your podcasts. We'll, of course, link to more information about this interview, casteism, Islamophobia in India, and um, Dilpreet's uh, later today in our show notes. We'll be right back after this. Yarra City Arts presents The Bandwagon, a new pop-up COVID-safe live entertainment venue at Condell Reserve this Sunday, February 20, from 6 to 8 p.m. Featuring punk rockers The Switches, who at age 13 will be playing their third public show, indie pop artist Ilka, who writes songs instead of getting therapy, and 16-year-old Cooper Jack, producer of Indie Pop Beats. For all Yarra Staycation events, visit yarracity.vic.gov.au slash rediscover. Yarra City Arts is a 3CR supporter. Hello, 3CR listeners. I'm Giselle Hanna from Accent of Women and Asia Pacific Currents, and I'm appealing to you to subscribe to 3CR to keep radical voices on air. I've been a volunteer and broadcaster at 3CR for over 20 years, and I can say categorically that radical voices like ours that bring you stories of extraordinary, incredible women from across the world leading grassroots struggles, well, those voices just aren't welcome in the mainstream media. You won't hear about the struggle against Samsung's human rights abuses against its workers in South Korea.
You won't hear about the plight of the Myanmar resistance against the coup on any other station, at least not the way we tell it here at 3CR. So be a comrade and go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast and that was the awesome Giselle Hannah uh, from Accent of Women and Asia Pacific, uh, Pacific Currents telling you about why you should subscribe to 3CR. Um, so just remember that if you haven't already, please join up or renew your subscription. You can call the station or you can do it all online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Um, at 3CR, we rely on the support of our listeners to keep going. We, um, we're not a for-profit um, we're a not-for-profit, sorry, community radio license holder and a strong subs- subscriber base is vital to our financial mm. independence. And I think Giselle nailed it with that description of you won't hear news coming from real people in the community anywhere else told with uh, as much unfilteredness as any other mainstream media and that's what makes 3CR so special. So... Uh, any support would be amazing. For sure. Um, so just remember, those subscription costs are $35 if you're unwaged, concession or um, pension, $75 for waged, and um, if you want to show solidarity or if you're a band organisation, those subscription costs are $150. So please um, get behind the station and subscribe uh, today. We're now going to go to a track from the band The Linda Lindas, which we've talked about and played on the show before. They're a punk rock band from Los Angeles. They're an all-girl group um, who all identify as either Asian-American or Latino. And, um, yeah, this is their new song, Growing Up, which is super fun, loud, and the perfect way to wake you up on a Tuesday morning. So here it is. This is Growing Up by the Linda Linders. Growing up isn't something you can make happen when you want it to. But since we're all growing up together, I guess I'll...
was Growing Up by the Linda Lindas. For regular listeners of Breakfast, you would remember that we were joined by Elise West early in the year and uh, Susie Snyder only a few weeks ago, both speaking to us about the catastrophe that is nuclear weapons and also the threat of nuclear war and ways in which we can create change. Well, joining us today from Quit Nukes is Margie Beavis, who is here to talk with us about Australian superannuation funds that are leading the way in divesting from companies involved in the funding, manufacturing, testing of nuclear weapons. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Maggie. Thank you very much, Fong. Could you please start by telling us about the history of Quit Nukes and uh, the work that you do there? Okay. Um, I'm a GP by background and I've worked a long time with the Medical Association for Prevention of War and then ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which started here in Melbourne over a decade ago by MAPW. So several years ago, we looked at... Um, we've been trying to get nuclear weapons abolished, as is obvious. Um, the financial system is one of the pillars that supports the nuclear weapons producers. So we looked at the... Uh, Australian financial landscape and realised a lot of superannuation funds, most superannuation funds in fact, have uh, investments in companies that produce nuclear weapons. It's really unacceptable given this is the sort of savings of Australians and we know that this is not something they support at all. They're very opposed to this concept. So um, we looked at 22 funds um, and did a report last year. But basically what we've been doing for the last three years or two and a half years is meet with fund managers, with senior executives, board members, and talk to them and also other people in the finance industry, talk to them about the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. It's now recognised very clearly that not only are nuclear weapons the worst of the weapons of mass destruction, they're now legal under international law. Um, The treaty which came into force, as Susie, I'm sure, told you, in January last year. So this, these weapons are now illegal. They're the worst of the weapons of mass destruction and for people's superannuation funds to be invested in them, their, their, their savings for their retirement is, is really completely wrong. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago we did speak to Susie Snyder from ICANN about the report Rejecting Risk and um, she talked us through those um, international um, financial institutions that are doing really well in terms of their anti-nuclear weapons policies and there are some that are sort of on their way um, to being Hall of Fame standard. Could you go into a bit more detail about um, how Australian superannuation funds um, uh, in terms of their involvement or divestment from, from nuclear weapons companies? How are we going in this country? Look, there's certainly considerable momentum towards funds um, classifying nuclear weapons as controversial weapons because most funds do completely exclude controversial weapons. And controversial weapons, the definition is things like chemical weapons, biological weapons, land mines, cluster munitions. So there's movement, but there's still there's a, lot, a long way to go. So the really um, impressive funds, active super... Um, Australian Ethical, Christian Super, Crescent Wealth, uh, Future Super, Verve Super. And in fact, last year, Host Plus has committed from January this year to be um, nuclear weapons free. We're also 
conscious that um, the Superannuation Fund Aware is considering in uh, this month or next month uh, its controversial weapons classification. So if they put nuclear weapons into their controversial weapons classification, that means that they will be excluding all nuclear weapons producers. And Care Super, during last year when they were aware that the report was coming out, divested from its nuclear weapons producer holdings and we're hoping that they will later this year um, address the policy issues around that. So they're the ones that are really moving. The ones that are really disappointing, probably the most, well, the private funds, ANZ, Smart Choice, Super, IOOF and MLC, have no exclusions when it comes to weapons. So if you've got your superannuation with any of those three uh, private funds, in other words, the profits go to the company rather than to the members, um, you're almost certainly your savings are supporting nuclear weapons producers. So they would be the ones that I think have got no exclusions whatsoever. Of the funds um, that are industry funds, um, probably Australian super is really, really disappointing. Um, It not only has nearly 1.5 billion. Australian super is the biggest superannuation fund in Australia and has about 1 in 10 Australians have their savings with them. Now, they have 1.5, nearly 1.5 billion in companies that produce nuclear weapons. And not only that, it's also in their ethical fund. If you go to their sustainable, I've forgotten the actual precise word, they all have different words like sustainable or ethical or... Anyway, their specific more ethical fund has, by percentage, more nuclear weapons producers than the rest of the funds. So they're really standing out as, as a I really wanted to go through some of the, the numbers that are presented in the report produced by Quit Nukes last year. 69% of Australians agree that their super fund should not invest in companies that are involved in nuclear weapons production. Um, so that's, you know, um, just that's it's still quite a lot of people. Um but then 71% of Australians who have a superannuation fund do not know or are unsure as to whether their superannuation fund invests in companies involved in nuclear weapons production. So it seems like while people do disagree or are very anti-nuclear weapons, they actually have no idea whether their super is involved or perhaps don't know whether to where to find the information or, or even how to start that conversation. Um, is that what you found in your research? Yes, I think it's like every issue. The devil is in the detail. And you can sign up to a superannuation fund that says we don't invest in controversial weapons. And then you have to go deep into the policies to find out how they define controversial weapons. And for most of these funds, they haven't updated their definitions. They haven't addressed the nuclear weapons, uh, the fact that nuclear weapons are now illegal under international law. Um, and so a lot of people do think they're doing the right thing. And then in the fine print, um, they, the controversial weapons definitions does not include nuclear weapons. We're very pleased this year, last year, the Responsible Investment Association of Australia, which is a very large organisation. We've been speaking to them for a couple of years. They've um, said that from this year, to be certified by the Responsible Investment Association of Australia, you have to have um, no nuclear weapons producers in your uh, portfolio. So that's a big step forward because a lot of these funds are saying that they're 
behaving well mm. and getting certified by the Responsible Investment Association have till now still had nuclear weapons producers in their portfolios. So we're very pleased with that step. That's another um, change that, um, yeah, we're very pleased to see that the, the, the RIA are doing that. And I guess, you know, combing through the fine details of of Superfund policies is quite laborious and time-consuming and I, I don't know about the language that is used, but but perhaps these reports and, and these policies aren't super accessible. So it's great that Quitnukes has released this report that is really um, accessible and easy for people to understand and, and to see whether or not their, their super fund is um, or has divested from nuclear weapons companies. So that's great. Um, just to finish our interview for today, Margie, it's clear that the majority of Australians are against nuclear weapons, and yet, as we know, Australia has not yet signed or ratified the treaty. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think the um, financial institutions divesting from these companies could create some change in that in that area? I think well, two several things there. Um, firstly, before we step away from the <laughs> financial institutions, if any of your listeners want to take action, they can go to the quitnukes.org page, go to the report, and then there's a take action button. And that's a very simple way to click on your super fund. There's a list of super funds there. And you can contact your super fund and say, what um, are you doing? Why? Why? What What are your policies of nuclear, on nuclear weapons? Mm-hmm. It's very straightforward. Ask the question and then you'll know what they're doing. And we need to put pressure on these funds. With regard to the signing of the nuclear weapons, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the Labor Party has committed to sign and ratify this treaty. Um, Anthony Albanese is a strong uh, proponent of um, nuclear disarmament. Um, the, um, we have support from a large number of parliamentarians and we have a cross-party Friends of the Treaty of the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons that has um, party support from across the board. So I think there's movement. Mm. I think that the financial pressure we put on institutions adds to the sort of change in perception of these weapons. These weapons have no legitimacy anymore. It's really a matter of delegitimizing, stigmatizing, getting people to recognize that we are supporting um, weapons that would be catastrophic if they're ever used. Um, yeah. People, you know, with with coronavirus for years, um, epidemiologists have been saying we're going to have a pandemic. It's going, to, it's coming at some mm. point. It will happen. Well, the same with nuclear weapons. They're there. We've been really lucky in the past. It's about seven times we've come extremely close to nuclear war um, and been saved. Uh, and I mean, I think that's more t- due to human error and technical error than politics and. Right. We've got to get rid of these weapons before they get rid of us. Definitely. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Margie Beavis, for joining us today. Um, it's yeah, such an important conversation to continue having. Um, and for listeners, again, if anyone's interested, please go to www.quitnukes.org. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Margie. Thanks very much, Phil. So that was Margie Beavis from Quit Nukes. If you're interested in reading their report and um, wanting to know more about whether or not your super fund supports and invests in uh, nuclear weapons companies, please remember you can go to quitnukes.org 
www.ngo.org. Um, and we'll be back right after this. Live at the Bowl is on now. The open-air series returns from January to April with an exhilarating program of live performance. See some of the best homegrown and international acts on the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl stage. Share a picnic on the hill, take in a symphony at sunset or dance the night away to your favourite musicians. Explore the full program at artscentremelbourne.com.au A 3CR supporter. Hey you mob, it's time to get back to the community. So get your proof of vaccination ready. Get started by creating a MyGov account if you don't already have one and linking your Medicare number. Then add your COVID-19 digital certificate to the Service Victoria app. Now you're ready to go. Your COVID-19 digital certificate is your ticket. Let's show it with kindness to the businesses we visit and the Victorians who run them. Visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash vaxproof. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. Next up, we're going to play a song by one of my favourite Australian artists, Mallrat. And I've been waiting for her to release new music for just, I don't even know how long. So very excited. This is art. This song is called Your Love. <laughs>
That was Small Rat with Your Love. 3CR has a long, proud connection with the city of Yarra and is broadcast out of a studio on Smith Street, and we're committed to supporting community initiatives and bringing attention to local social justice-based issues. Keen listeners of 3CR will know that we've been following the future of the Collingwood Children's Farm Community Gardens with close interest. Sadly, um, as of yesterday, the community gardens are set to be demolished by the Collingwood Children's Farm. The gardens have a proud reputation of being home to plots of lower-income, multicultural and elderly residents. Now they're set to be bulldozed and completely redesigned in losing their original purpose as a real grassroots community garden. So joining us this morning is Andrea Whitcomb from the Collingwood Community Gardens Association. She's a plotter of one of these gardens and a member of the Collingwood Children's Farm. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning, Edie. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, oh, thank you. Can you tell me about what has happened yesterday with the start of the picket? Absolutely. So a number of us um, um, met at the gate to the garden where we usually go in to garden our plots, along with a few supporters, and we basically um, bore witness to the beginnings of the destruction of the garden. Now... The farm will tell you that what they're doing is um, retrieving our own personal um, goods, which is which is true. But the fact is that the retrieval of those goods is, in fact, the beginnings of the destruction of the gardens. And it wouldn't need to happen had the farm managed the place properly in the first place. And the other thing that was very um, soul-destroying for us was the work-safe notice that they had to, by law, put up at the gate. And that notice was very, very clear. Yes, they had to make the garden safe, but not clear the gardens. It was very clear that the purpose was to make it safe, address the safety issues, but retain existing plots and structures. So this is a complete abuse of the work-safe system in order to then have effectively a tabula rasa, right, empty Mm. land on which you can then impose your own desires under a sham consultation process. Because anyone would know that if you're going to change something, you change it, you consult before you make any physical change, right? That's step number one. But even before that, you would actually discuss these things. The the farm is a membership-based organisation, right? Mm, Similar to 3CR. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) While there's been no discussion with members and no AGM to discuss and vote on it, and indeed, at the end of last year, when they were meant to have an AGM, they proceeded to actually dispel a number of plotters who were members of the farm from membership of the farm and did not allow a number of us to nominate for, um, for to be elected to the AGM. It, so it's, long was that system that we took them to court and we won. It, it seems enormously imbalanced and also like, it, the, like there is a cover story for what the farm is doing. Um, and, yeah, uh, as compared to the plotters who, you know, want to cultivate the land. So if I'm understanding correctly, the, far, uh, the farm is meant to be managing um, the land so that, the, that those plots can be used by you. Is that correct? Yes, that's 
that that's exactly correct. So there is a there, for years now. Um, there's been the, the gardens have been managed by the farm, and they do so through a system of individual licenses. And this is something that we've actually been arguing with them for years now that it should be possible to have more than one name on a license, precisely so that we can actually accurately represent that the mix of people who are at, in the plots and the simple fact that a plot, even though it's under one name, might actually be cultivated by two or more families or might indeed be cultivated by networks of people. So, for example, um, Peter Barber ran a number of plots where he, through his organisation playing our part, brought um, disadvantaged people with various issues on site gardened alongside them, gave them certain gardening skills, but in the process also built them up as people. Mm. And many of those people have now got the social confidence to go and apply for jobs, for example. So we're talking people with mental health issues, maybe people with certain disabilities. So this idea that the gardeners are kind of rich, middle-class, entitled people who have absolutely no concern for others is totally untrue. And not only do we have the example of Peter, but we have amongst us people from the Housing Commission flats. Let's not forget that it was people from the Housing Commission flats that began the gardens. Mm. We have refugees. We have migrants from across the globe. You know, there's people of Asian background, people of European background, you name it. We're all in there. So it is the most incredibly socially diverse community and it's because we cultivate the soil. And that kind of, you know, when you garden, you slow down and you have time to talk with people and you learn about people's lives and you begin to build real connections. And that happens in the working bees as well. So part of the management of the farm is that while we all look after our individual plots, we're also meant to gather every month and work the communal parts, except they prohibited us from looking after one another's plots when somebody is sick or away overseas for a little while. That's incredibly unfair. It's incredibly unfair. So the management by the farm of the gardens actually caused some of the problems that they're now using a WorkSafe report to address, right, but then going overboard. And the other thing that your listeners need to understand is that the farm has actively, and I mean actively, not given plots to people on the waiting list. So over 20% of the plots when we closed were unallocated. And that has been, so it's been run down over a number of years. And what they wanted to do was bring social enterprises, they brought one of them, Street, onto the gardens giving them plots as people left. Street spent $25,000 upgrading their plot and in the process destroying the plot and of one of the founders of the gardens. Never brought any kids, never grew anything on it, claiming that the site was unsafe. So oh. this is actually the start of the WorkSafe report, is Street 
and their desire to bring people who didn't have a license as plotters have with the farm on site. That's where this stuff has started. So there's the tension. So there's a total tension between what the farm is publicly saying, what they have privately and undercover done. You know, Street was never at the Working Bees. Neither was Connor, the the, the manager of the farm, who has a plot on the farm. Neither was Chris Williams, who's on the committee of management and is pushing an urban farming um, kind of ideology onto the farm. And then in the meantime... Look at what they're doing on the farm itself. They're, they're, they're taking all the animals out. There's one pig left now, which is terribly cool on that pig. They're social animals. What's happened to the animals that were there? They're gone. They're gone, Edie, because the whole thing is going to become an urban farm. <sighs> It's it, yeah. The the overwhelming feeling I'm getting there is that the, it's the tension between wanting to turn it into social enterprise and completely yeah. disrespecting the history of it as a community garden where you have those separate plots that people you use it, it for, like you know, personal. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> that's right. And then what they're doing is painting those community gardens. They're painting allotment gardening as individual and private, mm-hmm. and completely erasing or denying the, the role of allotment gardens in actually enabling community to develop. Mm. Because what you develop is social connections to each other. You develop a sense of place. You, you develop a sense of belonging. We have, I was talking with one plotter um, who was at the, at the garden gates yesterday and really, really upset. I mean, many people were upset, but Linda was particularly upset. We were having a quiet little chat, you know, and I totally understood what she said. She said, I'm a new migrant to this country. My, I don't have my family here. I have no one. I knew no one. I came to these... I, we managed to get a plot. She lived in an apartment in um, Abbotsford, so no space to garden, and is a Yarra resident. They're the two criteria for being able to go on the waiting list, Right. So she makes it to the end of the waiting list, gets a plot, starts to garden, goes there every day, meets all the old-timers, sees people coming in with their children and grandchildren, starts to build a community. Yeah. And starts to literally cultivate a sense of belonging and a sense of social connection. And then they turn around and kind of say that we haven't got an interest in, you know the disadvantaged and those who are doing it hard. It's dreadfully insulting to paint you in that way too. It's very insulting to paint us in that way. Yes, there are some people, including myself, who could be described as middle class, but it's not everybody and it doesn't mean that we are entitled people only interested in ourselves. No, you you and others have put forward yourselves to stand together to protect the gardens. Is there something, um, unfortunately, we don't have um, much time left to chat to you today, but we do want to keep in touch um, to talk to you about, you know, the the ongoing work to protect the gardens. We would love to keep in touch and let your listeners know. I mean, this week we will, you know, the, the, the pain yesterday on people was, extreme because even though it was their belongings being retrieved the manner in which it was being done signaled Mm. the destruction of those gardens so you know there's a lot of emotional toil from yesterday amongst our group absolutely our intention is to 
monitor and keep recording and um, document it on our website and um, and we will definitely be very interested in keeping in touch with you and your listeners and letting you know if we plan any any more but what you what everybody could do is write to Richard Wynn. Richard Wynn has never once answered our questions and it's his department and that of Lily and Ambrosio that have given the farm this money. Mm -hmm. While we were meant to be going in a good faith consultation process with his department, with TWELP, Mm -hmm. it's extremely bad faith. Mm -hmm. And people people need to tell him what they think. As well as writing to Richard Wynn, is there something that we, um, the community members can do? Can they come down to the picket and support you as well? That would be fantastic, yes. I mean, we're, we're trying to be there because, you know, many of us also work, so we're trying to be there between 7 and 8, 7 to 9. Mm-hmm. Um, some of us were able to stay the whole long day, but that, as I say, that was really painful. But if you're sort of going around your morning walk around the Yarra, stop by and talk with us, maybe take one of our flyers. Um, so I think, you know, emotional support, apart from anything else, is really important at this stage. Um, and... Um, go to our Facebook site, digging in um, gardeners, and um, you know, just any show of support, and let let the farm know what you think. Let them know that not everybody in this community agrees with their version of community and the process with which they're undertaking this task. Yes, you know, so above we'll... all the process, we're not against renovating the gardens, but the process is completely wrong. Absolutely. Um, we'll we'll definitely um, post some links to um, the campaign in our show notes as well. Um, and um, to, we'll, look, we're looking forward to keeping in touch with you and just finding out what else we can do to help support the community gardens. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. Oh, thank you, Edie. Thanks. And that was Andrea talking about the Collingwood Community Gardens Association and the fight to keep uh, the farm plots at the Collingwood Children's Gardens. Uh, Thank you very much, Andrea, and we'll be right back. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Joining us on the show today is Dr. Andrea Whaling, who is an Australian Research Council Fellow at La Trobe University. Her research focuses on exploration of sexuality, bodies, young people and sexual literacy, technologies, sex and sexual intimacy, and LGBTQIA plus health and well-being. She is on the show to talk to us about the future of sexual education, how we can instill respectful relationships and intimacy, intimacy skills in young people, and the importance of pleasure and fun in education. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrea. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start off by on a bit more of a broader topic in terms of 
uh, telling us a little bit about the importance of sex ed and how it can impact how young people specifically perceive sex, gender, consent and intimacy. So sex ed is kind of one of the first places in which we learn about how our bodies work, about what is sex um, and about why we might engage in sexual activities. And because of that, it becomes a really kind of fundamental place where young people and adults as well can learn better understand what's happening for them, what they might like or not like, how their bodies work, um, you know, as well as the risks and pleasures that are associated with sex and sexual activity. In terms of perceiving gender and intimacy, sex ed can play a really important role in either establishing and reaffirming, you know, gender binaries or actually kind of breaking them down and creating new pathways for people to think about the gender in relation to how they might enjoy sex and sexual activity. Yeah, and focusing in on, I guess, the current uh, situation with sex ed, especially in Australia, there's obviously been a lot of discussions about, you know, how important sex ed is, um, what kind of changes we need to make in order to make it more diverse. But just in, I guess, your own research, have you found within Australia, do you think we're getting better at teaching sex ed or is there still a lot to improve on? And I especially want to frame this in regards to, you know, inclusive sex ed for a variety of bodies and sexual orientations. Yeah, I don't think we're getting better, if I'm honest. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that sex education in Australia is not consistently applied across all schools or states. So what's happening is you get some schools that are doing a fantastic job. They're really engaged in the sex ed programs. They're trying to get parents involved. They're getting young people involved. They're doing just more than an hour once a year. Um, and they're making sure that they're, they're, they're adhering to, you know, inclusive content. But other schools aren't doing that. So in my research with young people, a lot of the time young people have told me that they didn't get much of a sex education or the sex education they got was very limited. They only learned a little bit about reproduction and some STIs, but they didn't really learn about anything else. Or some of them have talked about it was very shame-based or taboo-based or made them the teachers were very uncomfortable teaching sex ed or they did, the teachers didn't feel supported in teaching sex ed. So that leads to a really difficult environment for students to learn. So there's a lot of these kind of compounding factors. And so even though we do have a curriculum that is much more focused now on comprehension and inclusive, you know, including different bodies, including different, you know, sexual orientations, all of that kind of stuff, it's actually the application of that curriculum is, is still a challenge because we don't have that consistency across yeah, I think it's a good point as well, you know, that conflicting relationship between the pressure that teachers feel to teach the sexual education and also the pressure from parents to maybe disagree with what's being taught or um, that kind of thing. So there's a climate, I guess, that's uh, constructed where teachers don't feel confident to um, follow a diverse uh, teaching um, of sex education. Um, I wanted to talk about, you know, a lot of conversation is on this topic is based around the understanding that sex ed is taught in schools, which is obviously really important. But do you think there also should be a message sent to discussing sexual education at home? Yeah, look, I think I think with sex education, it needs to be a kind of whole of society approach. I think the problem with schools 
a great place to do it because you've got a really large body of young people in one place, but someone's always going to miss out. We have, you know, people who are disadvantaged who aren't getting to school every day, um, young people who are disenfranchised to school, kids who are moving between schools. So if they move, for example, they might miss that one week where a health class says sex ed. So having sex ed happening at home can be really helpful, but we also then need to be able to support the parents in, in having those conversations and some of the really great sex educators that I, I know of and I work with has really kind of said that when it comes to sex ed at, at home, it's less about parents delivering sex ed and more about parents being open to having, you know, really good discussions with their kids when their kids approach them with questions or concerns. So it's, it's about giving parents the tools to, to navigate those really difficult conversations. Yeah, for sure. Um, and really necessary as well. Um, I wanted to also ask about, I'm sure that you saw uh, there was a piece written by Jennifer Power on the conversation earlier this week uh, that was based around research done by Oxford University, where their findings support you know, decades of policy and advocacy work that has been seeking to push sex ed beyond abstinence or, I guess, risk-based approaches to improve sexual health outcomes, especially for young people, Um, particularly uh, referencing its emphasis on the benefits of educating the uh, importance of pleasure and fun in sex. Can you speak to this research and why pleasure and fun are just as important as teaching sexual health? Yeah, I mean, pleasure and fun are so important. And for me, I see pleasure and fun as being really linked to actually gender equality initiatives and linked to better ways of learning how to communicate with your partner and learning how to better understand consent and consent practices. So for me, pleasure and fun isn't just about taking away the taboo and shame around sex. There's nothing wrong with sex. And and it can be great. It can be fun. It can be exciting. But it's only those things when it's with a partner or multiple partners or yourself when you feel safe and you feel like you can communicate and when you feel that you're able to say no to things that don't that make you feel uncomfortable or you're able to explore and try new things in an environment. Having pleasure and fun included in a curriculum is really about helping young people understand that. And so instead of them kind of falling into situations, which happens to so many and, and myself included, you know, growing up, you fall into these situations that when you look back on, you think, oh, that wasn't okay for me, but I did it because I thought that was expected of me. And so pleasure and fun can really break down gender binaries. It can really instill a sense of gender equality, and it can really help young people learn a really important set of communication skills, you know, an emotional skill set that enables them to navigate very difficult conversations about wants and pleasures and desires. And in doing that, we recognize that sex isn't just about reproduction, and it's not about reproduction for a lot of people. It has so many other benefits. Um, it has health benefits around fitness. It has health benefits around mental health and well-being. And, and those for people who are interested in sex, and I, I think I want to be very clear that there's also a number of people who aren't interested in physical sex or activity, and that's okay too. And learning about that as well within a sex ed curriculum is really important, that it's okay if you really enjoy sex, and it's okay if actually sex is not something you're interested in, both of those are really valid experiences. Yeah, definitely. I think that's such a great point as well, um, kind of under the assumption that everyone should be into it and everyone should be talking about it at a young age. Uh, it can kind of provoke this pressure to assimilate to that. Um, I also wanted to touch on, you know, a lot of young people, especially now, get a lot of uh, – 
what they would perceive as sex ed from popular culture, whether that's, you know, TV, social media or pornography. Um, And it sometimes makes it hard to figure out how schools and even learning this at home can contest with such an attention grabbing and captivating force of uh, what sex should be. Uh, Do you think it's uh, like problematic young people's ability Oh, sorry, disturbing, I should say, Uh, young people's ability to get respectful and inclusive sex education, or do you think it's opening up a conversation? You know, if we were in the 90s, I would say it's very problematic. Yeah. Um, Because when we think back on the kind of media in the 90s, it was pretty pretty bad when you look at the kind of gender expectations and what was happening in some of those films and TV shows. When I look at what's available now, I'd have to go the other way and say, actually, there's some really great shows that are demonstrating sex that I've not seen for a very long time. And it's really refreshing. So obviously, there's Sex Education, which I think is a fantastic show. But I've been noticing in other shows as well, there's been a lot more focus on um, diverse genders and sexualities um, engaging in sexual activity. There's also a lot more focus on female pleasure and female orgasms, which I haven't, you know, that was not something that we saw in any of, like, the American Pie movies, really, um, when I think about the comparison. And social media as well. I mean, actually, there's a lot of really great social media influencers who are all who are very focused on, on sex education and consent. And, and pleasure and sex positivity and a lot of, you know, really great sexologists and sex educators have a social media following and you can get information from, you know, Snapchat or you can get information from TikTok and as long as it's kind of coming from an appropriate or accurate source, um, it's really great. There's, of course, always that other side that you can get some really bad information as well and so it's really about giving young people a set of critical literacies to actually assess that information. And a lot of them can and do do that. And I know in my own research with young people, they're very, they're quite smart and they are very good at kind of picking up what might not be appropriate or what might not speak to them and be able to compare it to other things. And they have a set of skills that enable them to kind of assess that information and figure out what actually works for them or what is right for them. For sure. Um, and just looking at the time, we're quickly running out of time. So I'm so sorry um, I could chat about this for a lot longer. But if you could just quickly mention to our listeners maybe some resources or um, some good websites uh, in terms of sex education. Yeah. So a really good one that I'm aware of is um, Shine, which is a Shine South Australia, which they have a really fantastic website providing sex education information as well as Sirens Western Australia is really great as well. Um, there's also a number of kind of Twitter sexologists or sex educators um, that you can kind of look up, and there's a lot of kind of sex-positive stuff there. Um, for example, the Sex Nerd, I think, is on Twitter, and she has a podcast as well. There's also Rowie Walden has a really great um, podcast called Search Engine Sex, and he's got some really fantastic episodes kind of going through all kinds of different things about how to have sex, how to navigate sex, how to kind of have difficult conversations. So those are a couple of resources that I can think of at the top of my head. Yeah, awesome. We can link to those in our website as well. Well, thank you so much, uh, Andrea, for joining us on the show. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you about sex ed. Thank you.
That was Dr. Andrea Whaling from the Australian Research Council at La Trobe University talking about sex ed and how we can promote positivity, pleasure, fun, and respectful relationships in young people. Quickly coming to the end of our show, uh, just quickly wanted to mention we have a subscriber giveaway. Uh, renew or join up as a new 3CR subscriber this week and go in the running to win a hamper created by Tuesday Breakfast sponsor Living Coco, supporters of uh, this program and community-owned and run media, uh, just to mention Living Coco empowers communities in the Pacific Islands through fair and ethical trade, creating Indigenous foods, biodynamic cultivations and cultural health systems. They create bespoke and organic cacao products from the Samoan Islands. So go ahead and support them and also support 3CR at the same time. Call now on 94198377 or go to 3 3cr.org.au. Keep it locked to 3CR. We've got Accent of Women coming up next and have a great Tuesday. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.